Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Our passage today is going to be in Matthew 2, um, 13 through 23. And this passage is at the very tail end of what we think of as, as the Christmas story, or the Christmas pageant. Uh, those parts of the gospel that deal with the events of just before or, or just after the birth of Christ. And since we're jumping in, uh, let me just set it up for you, lay this, uh, the background here. And in chapter 1, um, uh, verses 1 through 17, which uh, you remember, Corey, from last week. Uh, just, just teasing. He's a southerner, though, and I respect him. Um, <clears throat> we had the genealogy of, as Matthew puts it, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So these verses are organized in such a way to demonstrate to the Jews, who is Matthew's uh, initial audience, uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and uh, Davidic covenant. He is the seed of Abraham through which the world will be blessed, and he's the seed of David by which the whole world will be ruled. He is the promised Messiah King. And then in verses 18 through 24, we find the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus. These verses make it clear that Christ is no mere man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. It's repeat, it was repeatedly prophesied in the Old Testament that God would be the Redeemer of Israel. And so it is. Jesus, God the Son, is the Redeemer of true Israel, the elect. And then in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we zoom forward some period of time, several months, maybe a year or so, and have the record of the Magi search for Christ. Now, King Herod hears that the Magi, or the kings, the wise men, are... Um, searching for him and, and says to them, when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. But Herod is lying. The Magi find and worship Jesus. However, they were warned by God not to return to Herod and instead leave for their own country by another way. And this brings us to our text, which I chose uh, because it's really preached as a Christmas sermon. And I like to preach things that people don't preach that often. Um, and it's a real shame because it brings into focus some very worthwhile things. So stand as we read our text. Again, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord to the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all its vicinity for two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared 
in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and took, took the child and his mother and came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and take a seat. This passage can be broken up into three sections that each show how Jesus is the fulfillment of three different prophecies. So we'll look at 13 through 15, which is often called the flight to Egypt, 14 through 18, which is called the slaughter of the innocents, and 19 through 23, which I'm calling settling in Nazareth. So first, let's look at the flight to Egypt. And the first thing that sticks out to you in verses 13 through 15 is the excellence of Joseph. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that he was a man of character and faith. In the previous chapter, Matthew tells us that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And at the time, Joseph didn't know that her baby was Christ that he had been conceived by the Holy Spirit, he would have simply thought that the woman he had pledged to marry and taken to his home had been unfaithful to him. And one of the greatest forms of betrayal, breaking a marriage covenant. And many of us can think of of pain and resulting anger that came from uh, lesser betrayals. And this sort of fornication would have had severe penalties under the law, and Joseph would have been just to bring charges against her and call attention to her sin. However, again, he was a, a man of uncommon character. Matthew says, um, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So Joseph, he had really three options. Uh, he could file a lawsuit. Maybe there could be a court case. Or he could simply divorce her. He could remain uh, Divorce her quietly, remain married to her. And, um, and initially he chose to divorce her. But even there, he planned to do it very quietly. In the, uh, our translation, it says, put her away secretly. And this is just evidence that he's a righteous and kind man. He did not desire to disgrace Mary. Matter of fact, just before the angel reveals that the baby was conceived of the Holy Spirit, Matthew says, But as Joseph considered these things, he was still mulling it over. He was still thinking about what course of action uh, he should take. And I think many men would have been vengeful in wanting to extract their pound of flesh, but not Joseph. He was a righteous, kind, and a very thoughtful man. And I've heard um, several sermons, many sermons, laud the character of Mary, and rightly so. Uh, she was a remarkable and, and godly young woman. Uh, we Protestants can wrongly overreact to the Roman Catholic abuses and fail to highlight Mary as an example of faith. Calvin says, It cannot be denied that God, in choosing and destining Mary to be the mother of his son, granted her the highest honor. Amen? And while it's not exactly the same, something similar could be said of Joseph. How many men would you entrust to protect and raise your only son? 
many. And yet God chose Joseph. And you see why. Joseph is, is quite the man. In verse 13, an angel warns him in a dream that the wicked king Herod intended to kill Jesus. So what does Joseph do? Verse 14, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. He immediately obeys God. He, wastes no, he doesn't waste any time. His wife and the Son of God, the Messiah, were in danger, so Joseph sprung into faithful action. And it's incredible how God uses human means to accomplish his will and redemptive plan. It pleases him to do so. And in this case, it pleased him to use the means of our earthly father. God honored earthly fatherhood by entrusting the protection and care of his son to Joseph. Fatherhood's not honored in our culture. Watch any sitcom of the last 25 years. Al Bundy, Homer Simpson, Ray Romano. I don't know what the character's name is. I never watched it. Um, They're all depicted at best as well-intentioned, but ultimately incompetent dopes, right? You can even see it in children's books. As a father of six kids, I have said goodnight to the moon many, many times. Um, And... uh, the character I hate more than any character is Curious George. That's another sermon. I can tell you why. Uh, but the one that I want to talk about now is I cannot stand Papa Bear from the Berenstein Bears. He is like a third kid. Mama Bear is always bailing him out for some foolish idea. He can't control himself. He's always eating all the candy. Uh, he's there for comedic effect. And you can even see the, the negativity towards fathers. On many Father's Day sermons, Mother's Day sermons are, are overwhelmingly positive. I've sat through one that wasn't once, and that was quite the sermon. Um, but uh, many ministers like to use Father's Day as a day to sing of men's failures in their sermons. And I get it. I do. Many dads are significant fa- failures. Our nation is in disarray largely because of the failures of fathers, absent fathers, abdicating fathers, abusive fathers. These sorts of fathers are tornadoes in a trailer park. You know, destruction everywhere. But listen, listen to God's word. There are Joseph's imperfect fathers, fathers with feet of clay, fathers with real sins, but faithful men that fear God. The men have been gathering for several weeks now um, on Wednesday evenings for what we call basic training Uh, It's more or less a study on all the virtues and skills necessary for a man to honor God with his life. How to be a godly man. And uh, the teachers are ruined older from Christ the Word in Toledo, another PCA church where Andrew served. Um, His name's Bob Forney, and he's a godly man full of helpful wisdom. And last, this last Wednesday, I I was struck by many things he said. Uh, But one thing that relates to this sermon, um, he said... Because at the end of this, at his teaching, I think a lot of us guys, those that were there, were just like, whoa, you know. And, and he said to us, everything I give you guys, I receive from others. My father, grandfather, and uncles taught me. What a treasure trope. God used those earthly fathers as a means of sanctification in the life of Bob Forney. And praise God for them. They made Dr. Forney a... Uh, more of a blessing uh, to his children, but to the men of this children, or to this church, and, and hopefully 
uh, more of a blessing to our children through us. Our Redeemer was uh, preserved for us by an earthly father. And we do well to honor fatherhood. Don't tear it down. Don't tear it down. Build it up. God works through fathers in amazing ways. Brothers, are you up to it? Are you up to being a, a man that fears God like Joseph? He's a great example. You want to walk in his steps? Well, then fear God and keep his commandments. And ladies, encourage your men. It's hard to be a mother. It's hard to be a father. And everyone needs encouragement. And if your man is working hard to take care of your kids and raise them up in the fear of the Lord, uh, pray to God for them, that they would be strengthened in that work and thank God for them. Not everyone has a good dad like Dr. Forney, but I hope all the children in this church do. The flight of flight to Egypt ends with Matthew explaining this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. This prophecy is from Hosea 11:1. It's referring to God's redemption of Israel from Egypt, or what uh, we more commonly call the Exodus. And yet, it's being applied to Jesus here. And the reason is that Israel is a type of Christ, right? A foreshadowing of Christ. In Exodus 4. God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And one commentator said, just as Pharaoh, that cruel king, had tried to destroy Israel, so another king, namely Herod, at least equally as cruel, was attempting to destroy Christ. But just as on the way to Egypt during their stay in that house of bondage and in their exodus, Jehovah had protected his people. So God had protected his son not only on the way to Egypt, and during his temporary residence there, but on the way back. So essentially, in Christ, we have a reenactment or a recapitulation of the history of God's people to show us that Jesus is a true and better Moses who leads us out of the bondage of sin into the freedom of a new life, makes us slaves of righteousness. We want to be righteous. In Romans 6, Paul says, Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching, the gospel, to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. God has called us out of sin into the freedom through Christ. It's interesting, Christ was carried in the body of Israel through the tribe of Judah in that first exodus. He was carried out. He descended from those men. So that the true Israel could be found in the body of Christ in this final exodus. That's what Matthew's saying. All that stuff back then is about this man. This is the Messiah. This is your Redeemer. This is your Deliverer. The Christmas story isn't just some cutesy baby in a manger story, or at least it shouldn't be. It was the introduction of Christ as Redeemer and Savior. Let me get to one of the more difficult parts of this passage, often called the slaughter of the innocents. Not innocents because children are without sin, innocent in that they didn't deserve to be murdered. Uh, This portion of the Christmas story is often glazed over for obvious reasons. It's brutal. Bloody, 
Um, murder is always terrible, but the murder of a baby, more so. And I'll return that just in a moment. But first, I want to address the fact that there's, there's no historical record, really, of this happening. However, it is completely in keeping with the character of Herod. Um, Herod's two favorite sons, his two favorite sons, he had strangled to death. So I don't know what happened to the ones he didn't like. Um, his favorite wife, he had married 10 of them. He actually had her put to death. And when he got older and senile, he would wander around his palace calling for her. And she was dead, so he didn't find her. So he would send out servants to go, go find my wife. And, uh, and when they couldn't find her, for obvious reasons, he would have them beat. As he approached death, he knew no one would mourn him because everyone hated this guy. He was terrible. So he had a bunch of noblemen gathered up and put into prison. And on the day that he, was the, the day he would die, they were to, to slaughter them and kill them. That way, people wouldn't mourn for Herod, but they would mourn that he died. And that's, that's what this man's like. So this is it's keeping with Herod's character very much. And there's another reason uh, this is probably not recorded, is that Bethlehem and the area around it is pretty sparsely populated. A lot of times when we read this, we kind of import the murder of the children in the Exodus, right? Or right before the, during the birth of Moses, we bring that over. Um, and it could have been, one scholar said, as few as 15 or 20 babies. It's just not a big area. Um, and you say, only? Right? Only 15, 20 babies? Yeah, yeah, I do say only. I say only because abortion clinics do more than that in a week. And the question I have, would you oppose King Herod? You're thinking I would. Really? Do you oppose King Herod in your town? The one that's posing as a doctor? How? There's that when, you know, when someone's going through a rough time, people say, sending positive thoughts your way. Now, we're good reform people. We should be praying for people and not sending thoughts. You can keep your thoughts. I'll take your prayers. But I think sometimes we think negative thoughts. Mm. Bad. I mean, are you doing anything? Anything at all? If not, put aside your anger and disgust as you read. And Herod became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity. This happens across America every week and has been happening for decades. We allow a bunch of Herods to reign unencumbered. And we have a little Herod, we have a pair of them. They've gone in business together downtown in Greenville. Some of us were down there Saturday, but not many. Now, I am not trying to guilt trip you. If you feel guilt, I would say that's the Holy Spirit. But what I am trying to do is I'm trying to provoke you to feel. Do you feel? Where is the righteous anger and disgust? They're babies. They're babies. Look around. Seriously, look around. See the babies? They're babies. They're being murdered. They're in a dumpster out back that says medical waste. I know we don't come to church to feel. 
well, you know, good vibrations or whatever. But they're killing babies. Where's the weeping? Where's the weeping? As I was thinking about this week, I kept tearing up. Will no one speak up for them? Will no one stand outside the gates of Herod's, uh, Herod's palace and scream, Murderer! Will no one warn these women of their blood guilt? May God give us anger. May he give us some fire. But the, just the charismatics get it about their stupid songs? Dancing, we can't have fire about babies being murdered. I got to feel bad saying these things from a pulpit because people might get upset. Where's the fire? Why aren't we like Joseph? We have power in this country. I don't have to go anywhere. I can park my car down there and they can do nothing. That doctor can come out and say, I'm going to call the police on you. So what? I'm never leaving. That should be our attitude. Now, big whoop. I went down there on Saturday once a month. Trust me, I don't get much rights from that. They're just, they're at work all the time. But here's my challenge. I don't challenge you to come down there. I challenge you just to feel, just to feel some disgust and anger. See what the Lord will do with it. In verse 17, we get our second uh, fulfilled prophecy from Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And to understand this, you kind of have to understand Rama. Rama was on the border between the northern and southern kingdom. Um, and it's where, where kings would a lot of times put the conquered masses before they're going to deport them out, you know, out to wherever they're sending them to. Um, so it represents both uh, exiles, exiling of the southern and northern nation. And Rachel here uh, serves as a figure for the mother of Israel. Right? She's Jacob's favorite wife. She's watching and she's weeping over the conquered multitudes as they wait in Ramah to be sent into exile. And it's fitting that Rachel's used here. If you remember, uh, she says, give me children or I die to her husband. And now she's being robbed of her children, of her descendants. So she weeps. She weeps over them. And this prophecy comes from Jeremiah 31. Very important chapter in scripture and it's actually a very encouraging chapter it's full of words of hope and consolation in particular there's a promise of the new covenant is found in jeremiah 31 it says god's not done with his people he will send a messiah and there's a there's a parallel being drawn here rachel being deprived of her children she is being deprived of her children once more right by this evil king but fret not the branch of righteousness, the Messiah. He's not just coming this time. He has arrived. So our exile under the rule of godless kings is coming to an end. We see the kingdom of God breaking in and spreading out over this whole planet. And they can't stop us. Did you guys read that Chinese pastor? He's, he's, they, they, uh, they're persecuting the Christians very aggressively in China right now. And it was this wonderful sermon that he's just going to stay faithful to God. And uh, they can't stop us. We have Jesus. We have Christ. And, and, and it's breaking in. It's bringing an end to this. 
Christ the King, the King of Kings, will bring justice. Christ was our true exodus from sin, but he's also our hope in exile. While we wait for the kingdom to be fully consummated, he's our hope. And I'm thankful to God that this narrative is included in the Christmas story. The birth of Jesus is always retold in soft colors with beautiful music in the background. But the Messiah was born into a brutal, bloodthirsty world. And we modern Americans have a hard time relating to that. Especially my generation and on. Folks that experience Vietnam get some of it. But nowadays our wars are fought uh, using drones and aircraft in a way it's just not the same. And, and until 9-11, we really have never had anything like a foreign army uh, do, have a successful attack on us, really. Uh, and if you think about how traumatic 9-11 is, I, I tear up every time. I, I can't even control it. I don't. And other nations have those things happening all the time. Lebanon had 17 wars in 35 years. 17 wars. Most people on this planet have grown up with just brutality all around them. It happens all the time. So the gospel begins with the bloodshed of babies at the hand of the evil king. And it ends with the bloodshed of Jesus on the cross at the hands of evil rulers. Why? Because if the gospel can flourish in a world that produces a slaughter of the innocents in the cross, the gospel can flourish anywhere. That's why. There there is hope in a war-torn, violent, brutal world. The hope of Christ. That's why this is here. Rachel's tears will be wiped from her face. God will bring his beloved into heaven. And it ends with the settling in Nazareth. And there's only two things I want to pull out of this. First, I love how it starts. But when Herod died, why do we care so much about the kings of this world? They die. And they don't care about us. They hate us because Christ is king. They don't want uh, there to be any other king because they live to build their own kingdom. I mean, it's crazy. Herod's like, oh, the Messiah. The fulfillment of all, all these crazy prophecies. How do I kill him? It's bizarre. I read one historical um, account that he had the Sanhedrin council killed in an attempt to rid them of the uh, descendants of David. So he's, he's trying to stop the Messiah from coming. Why? Well, listen to Psalm 2. Listen to it with Herod in mind. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. 
Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For blessed are all who take refuge in him. Herod is dead. Nero is dead. Hitler is dead. Mao is dead. They're all going to die. They're all going to die. All the kings are going to die. And God laughs at them in heaven because he's installed his Messiah king in Zion. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. There is only one eternal king and he is our savior. He's Jesus. Now the final prophecy in verse 23 uh, says, And he came to live in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now note it says prophets, plural. There isn't a single prophecy that directly says he shall be called a Nazarene. Uh, But there are many prophecies that make it clear that the Messiah would be from humble circumstances. And that's probably what it's talking about. There's some other, it might be a word play um, that Nazareth might be connected to the idea that Jesus is the branch. Um, But what it seems to be connected to, and you see this later in the Gospels, is that um, Nazareth was humble. Remember when he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, we found the Messiah, raised from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Um, also, Nazareth was, was settled in right after the exile, which sometimes is called the return to Zion. And they're coming back to Israel. And it, it wasn't a glorious city back then, and it, and it wasn't at this time either, because um, the people were coming back to a very depleted, beat-up Israel. So it's fitting that a little pathetic post-exile city would be the home of the Messiah. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not mighty, not many mighty, not many noble, but God had chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the, the, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Herod was a big man. He sided with Antony during, uh, after Julius Caesar dies. It's all split up against, between his heirs. And he sides with Antony, and he loses, and and he puts himself before Caesar Augustus, who had been Octavian. And um, he says, look, I was a good friend to Antony. I know I was on the wrong side, but look how good of a friend I was, right? And then Caesar Augustus says, oh, okay, yeah, put, the, put your uh, you know, crown on. You can still be a big man. And he had a lot of power, and uh, he's dead. He's dead. He's a famous man, powerful man. Uh, Jesus is from Nazareth. He's from nowhere. Some of you are from nowhere. I'm from Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Anyone spend a week in there? Grew up across the street from Seagram's Whiskey. I still smell the yeast. Wherever I'll smell the yeast. Um, not from great stock, right? But, but neither was my Savior. And he loves me. He loves you too, because none of you are from great stock. No, you're not. Very few of you are noble. Very few of you are wise. But that's all right. Because Jesus is the Messiah of the lowly. 
That's why he came lowly. He's our exodus. He's our hope in the exile. And he's the one that will bring us into the post-exile promised land. But that's what the Christmas story should be about. It's the gospel of the promised king. That's what you should use all those awkward family meals. Don't talk about Trump. Not that I care. But if you're going to throw your dinner roll, right, if you're going to cause a stir at the table, do it for the gospel. Do it for Christ. Be a little awkward. Take some risks. Preach the gospel to your baristas. Preach your gospel to the next door, to your, to the next door neighbors as you go and say, come, come to our Christmas Eve service. And here's why you should, because there's a Messiah, and he'll give you peace. He'll save you from your sins. All the rules of, these world, of this world will come and go, but he never will. So preach that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you the promise of salvation that we have in your son, oh, these amazing prophecies going to the very beginning of everything, that you would give us a savior, a redeemer, a king of kings, a prince of peace, a mighty ruler, a hope in the darkest times. God, we pray that this Christmas season where people are open to talk about so-called religious things, that we would take advantage to preach your whole gospel and we'd find consolation in your son, our Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.